thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to that Paleo Show, making the Paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm really excited to be joined by Angelo Coppola. He's the host at Humans Are Not Broken blog and the creator of the latest in Paleo podcast, which is a fantastic news resource. He follows a diet called the Plant Paleo Diet, which I can't wait to chat to him about because it's, it's something I'm very, very interested in at the moment. We'll talk more about that in a sec. He's an omnivorous, nutrient-rich, truly whole food diet that's dominated by plant foods. He's lost an amazing 90 pounds and kept it off. Um, and in 2003, uh, 2013, traded his corporate career for full-time podcasting, blogging, and pursuing a healthy lifestyle. Adopting a more minimalist lifestyle, major downsizing, owning less stuff has helped make all of this possible. And he says his philosophy can be summed up with the phrase, human beings are not broken by default, which I can't wait to talk to you about. Angelo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's so exciting to have you on. I, uh, I saw that this was in my schedule this week, and I just thought, you know, this is just the most perfect timing. Um, I've got a new girlfriend, Stephanie, who I've been talking to about paleo and talking to about food, and she's literally just been in the last few months to this uh, amazing retreat in, in Greece, in Ikaria, as I mentioned to you before, off air, uh, in one of the blue zones, and, and she was talking about how there, these people who you know, have a hugely high percentage of people who live to 100 years of age, um, they, they eat meat about once a week. Um, so I'm really curious to hear your story, Anthony. So tell us how you got into paleo, and particularly how you got into this plant-based paleo diet. Okay, well, um, you know, I roller coastered between obesity and being overweight uh, for most of my life. And uh, throughout my 20s and 30s, it was kind of like an up and down thing. Uh, sometimes maybe even flirted with normal weight, but for the most part was either obese or overweight. And my... As I brought my weight down, I, I utilized everything, the, you know, the, all the, 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 the usual suspects, calorie counting. I've done low carb. Uh, back in the 90s, I was introduced to paleo originally. Never really gave it a full go back then. But then um, most recently when I had lost some weight about six years ago, maybe 30, 40 pounds using a calorie counting kind of an approach, uh, I was calorie counting and also increasing activity. So it's the whole eat less, move more kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? And, and it worked up to, an, up to a point and then I injured myself. So I had this knee injury that kind of took away the, the physical activity portion of that. And about that same time, I was reintroduced to, to paleo through Mark Sisson. I had heard an interview with him on a podcast. Mm -hmm. He was talking about primal and I was like, you know, I think I'm kind of plateauing here. This is something that I want to give a go. It, it had always made quite a lot of sense to me, and I kind of went into it, and, and just dove in feet first, and and never looked back. Okay, um, and that worked for a good while. I think I lost maybe about another ten to fifteen pounds with that approach, mm. um, and it was very easy to sort of maintain at that weight level. And I was hovering right at the high end of normal and overweight, but you know, looked good, had muscle mass. I was very happy, mobile, everything. Um, but as time went on, and I, I don't know um, if you recall, you know, back in 2012 or so, there, there were a lot of debates in the paleo community about increasing maybe the level of starch and whether or not yeah. potatoes and white rice were... were safe starches. Safe yeah. starches, exactly. So, um, as I experimented, experimented more and more with increasing... 
my carbs. For me, I found it giving me more energy and my pants getting a little bit looser as well. And so um, that that worked well, uh, you know, dropped a little bit more weight that way. And then eventually I became very interested in the research on the microbiome. And, uh, you know, there's pretty much universal agreement that a high fiber diet, which acts as uh, prebiotic for the gut flora, is beneficial to the microbiome, you know, and it, it strengthens the gut wall, is good for leaky gut, it, it can help, you know, change cravings, mood, all kinds of things. So I experimented with that, with making more room, essentially more room on my plate for plants. And when you do that, I mean, you can only eat so much. And so I kind of started cutting out all of the oils, added sugars, all that stuff, which were pretty much fairly low. I I had already kind of reversed from the higher fat kind of paleo and my added fat content was pretty low, but now I pretty much eliminated it, really increased the plant content um, and again, since you can only eat so much, also reduced how much meat I was eating. And again, I was just doing this to experiment with how it made me feel and how, if I noticed anything different in the gut flora department and, you know, did I digest better when, what would I notice? And I ended up losing an additional 20 to 30 pounds without that being my intention at all. And so, um, I also enjoyed eating that way. I, I felt really good and I realized, you know, um, this is a modality that works really well for me. And I've stuck with it now for two years and maintained that level of leanness. Um, I'm about six feet tall um, and about 165 pounds, maybe fluctuating between 165 and maybe flirting with 170 sometimes, but it just stays right between there. And just feel absolutely fantastic eating this way. Yeah, so uh, just, you know, for the Aussies who are listening in and, and trying to do the conversions, I, I was just uh, playing around on my calculator just then going 165 pounds, it's about 75 kilos, so you okay. know, generally you can sort of divide by two as a rough guy, but divide by 2.2 is more accurate, um, mm-hmm. but uh, just, just for those people who are curious as I am about the numbers and going, oh, <laughs> Thank you for doing that. But, um, the, uh, you know, the photos you've got on your website are great because I was just looking at them earlier and seeing, you know, you've got the photo of you beforehand, you've got the photo of you when you were doing the paleo diet and the photo of you doing the plant-based paleo diet and, uh, mm-hmm. and in each of those progressions, there's some quite stark changes, obviously. So, for people who want to check that out, that's probably worth going and having a bit of a look at too. Uh, but before we sort of get delve into more about that plant-based paleo diet, I'd love to go right back to the start and talk to you a bit about, um, you know, when you were doing the calorie counting and the exercise. I mean, how did that work for you? Obviously, it worked for you from the perspective of you lost, you know, quite a bit of that weight that you wanted mm-hmm. to lose. But what else did you notice in terms of your energy, in terms of your cravings, in terms of your mental health, all those other aspects of that? Yeah. So I think like for like as with most people, it's really great in the beginning, you know, and the, and the weight definitely comes down, but uh, I didn't, I don't believe now, nor did I really experience back then that it would be a sustainable way to uh, continue eating just because there wasn't enough focus on my part, you know, on food quality and nutrient density. And so I, once I got down to, I don't know, probably eating around 17, 1800 calories a day to continue to try and lose weight. And this is on top of some physical activity. I found, I found myself very hungry yeah. all the time. I would... <laughs> After I ate lunch, I was immediately thinking about, well, what's, what are we going to have for dinner? You know, and so food was constantly on my mind and not in a good way. And so, um, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with the approach. Maybe it works for some people to a larger extent than it did for me. I think for me, it kickstarted my weight loss. It got me um, where I really wanted to be as far as moving in the right direction. But as far as it being a long-term sustainable direction for me, that just wasn't the case. Yeah, it's a great point you make, actually, because I think, you know, in the paleo world, probably particularly, but probably in lots of other worlds as well, you know, we can kind of rubbish that whole, you know, calorie in, calorie out mm-hmm. theory and say that's bad and that's wrong and whatever. But but as you said, for, for some people that can really work and, and, you you know, as much as there can be some downsides to that and, you know, many of the people we've interviewed on this show have talked about taking that approach and, and you know, getting sick or getting inflammatory mm-hmm. diseases or injuries or whatever it happens to be or mental health, you know, just getting feeling bad. Uh, but obviously, you know, there are upsides to that as well. And it, it probably is worthwhile acknowledging that. So, w- what were the positives that you noticed, you know, when you did start making those changes and losing some weight, you know, how did that change you physically and I guess also mentally as well? Okay. Well, yeah. Anytime you lose, you know, 40 pounds, I started off at about 250 and I'm sorry, I can't do these conversions in my head. <laughs> so, um, started off at about 250 pounds, lost 40, which I, I guess would be roughly, you know, a little less than 20 kilos. Um, I felt fantastic, you know, and I think that as you burn off some of that fat that's been with you for years and years, you start getting rid of the, not only the extra weight, but um, maybe some toxins that are being carried around in there and uh, you start to look better, which makes you feel better, you know, and I, I really don't have very much negative to say about calorie counting. And in fact, I think everyone should experience some form of calorie counting. Well, I I take that back. That's too broad of a statement. But (laughs) I I think that it's a very good exercise for people, especially people who struggle with their weight, because um, one of the benefits, one of the maybe unintended consequences, a, a positive one, was that I became quite good at estimating calories. You know, I, I, I finally understood that, oh, well, I thought I was eating maybe 2,500, maybe 2,700 calories a day when I was walking around at 250. But in actuality, maybe it was more like 3,500 on average. And maybe on a big day, it was 4,000 calories. And so it's quite startling to see um, to, to sort of have this evidence in front of you. And I, I was using an app called Lose It to track all this data. And so um, it really gives you a sense of how much fuel is in the food you need, how much fuel you actually require to get yourself through the day. And so, um, you know, even to this day, I can, I can kind of judge how much I'm eating just by kind of looking at it because I did so much calorie tracking back then. It was a uh, probably a good six months daily. And so I feel like that was a really good exercise. You know, I, I do think that it's also a really good exercise to throw away the calorie counting at <laughs> some point, to throw away the tracking, because um, to me, the point is to um, understand things better at an intuitive level and and then kind of uh, transcend the, the tracking, if that makes sense. And, yeah. um, you know, I would say the same thing about a step counter. You know, you might think you're walking two or three miles a day because you have a job where you move around a lot. Well, carry around, you know, your smartwatch and throw an app on there that tracks it and see what you're really doing. And you don't necessarily have to do that every day, all day, uh, but do it for a while. And it'll give you at least sort of a baseline understanding of where you're at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Like, I've never really done calorie counting or step counting either, but Probably the, the closest example I've got to that was, you know, playing around with doing fasting, you know, and, and I read mm-hmm. a book and one of the things I suggested was to do a 24-hour fast just to see what actually happens when you get to different times and how your hunger actually, you know, to get to know 
when you're hungry versus when you're just wanting to eat because it's conditioning versus when you're craving and, and just to sort of play around with those differences. And, and in the same way, I, I found that absolutely fascinating to get a better absolutely. insight into my body and, and what I was doing and what I was experiencing. I did a five-day fast um, maybe six months ago, maybe, maybe a little bit further back, and I, I had the same experience. I mean, it, it opened my eyes completely as far as just having an understanding of what hunger is and how much, you know, hunger is actually something that comes in waves. And you probably even experienced that in the 24-hour fast, yeah. right? Where, you know, you think you're just starving and then all of a sudden, five minutes later, it's gone. Totally gone. You know, so... Yeah, so so you you kind of have this different relationship with being hungry, and and you can um, I think especially when I did this you know a little bit more of an extended fast realized that it's not necessarily a bad thing, and and it's it's okay to be hungry, mm. um, and I've I've actually worked fasting into um, my routine. If you if you notice on the website, I have you know everything kind of laid out for the plant paleo diet, and I have version zero point eight because I, I I have that there sort of just as a reminder to be open to new evidence, open to <laughs> modifying this as I go. You know, I mean it, it it shouldn't be a religious thing. I don't think diet should be like religion and politics. It needs to be much more science based, and 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 we need to be open to new evidence. So um, one of the things that I've modified, but it hasn't made it onto the site yet, is that you know. A very strong example that we get from nearly all hunter-gatherer groups is that there's a time for fasting and feasting. And it may not be scheduled or planned, but um, it's just a matter of the everyday course of their lives that, hey, we're super busy this day or we're moving from this camp to a camp 20 miles away. And you probably don't eat a whole lot that day, you know. So I've I've now incorporated a 24-hour fast as long as well as a 24-hour feast. I think that's pretty important too. Where yeah, there's gosh. I have zero food rules on one day <laughs> per month, you know. And and really, no matter what I eat or how much I eat on that one day, let's say I did just you know really go out, go overboard and had 5,000 calories of just whatever kind <laughs> just of food, like right? Pizza Hut, all you can eat just from yeah, sunrise yeah, to yeah. sunset, right? And just really gorge down on it. <laughs> if you average that with the day of fasting, it, it comes out to two 2,500 calorie days, right? So <laughs> it doesn't really affect on, in, 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 on the monthly scale. It's not going to affect your nutrient intake. It's not going to affect your calorie intake. It's, it's really just more of a mental break and a celebration of living. We try to get together, have our family come, friends, and we'll just prepare a nice feast and um, if, if there happens to be a big holiday that month, we'll just do it on the holiday, of course. But uh, it, it's been a really nice, a nice exercise to just forget about diet for a day as well. You know, I like that. That sounds like lots of fun. Hey, uh, coming back to your calorie counting experience, um, I was really curious. You know, you mentioned the knee injury that sort of slowed you down and stopped you. I'm curious to know whether you think that that may have had something to do with the way you were doing your diet and exercise at the time, and, and whether you think now having made the changes you've made, whether you're more resilient to those sort of exercises and less likely to have those sort of setbacks as well? I would say it probably had more to do with how sedentary I was. Um, mm. be, and and the knee injury was the result of me completing my very first 5K of my life. You know, I, <laughs> it was on Thanksgiving and, and out here we have a, it's, it's common for there to be what we call turkey trots. And so before the big Thanksgiving meal, you go out and run a 5K for charity. 
And that's what I did, but that put me out of commission for two to three months. It, it just, I had an extreme yeah. stiffening in my knee and um, I had, I had worked my way up and, and obviously trained for it a bit, but that was the first time I had ever run 5k without stopping. I mean, I, I'm coming from a long history of, um, like I said, obesity and overweight and, uh, running just wasn't my thing ever. So, um, while I absolutely enjoyed it and, and was very proud of the fact that I was able to finish without stopping, uh, at the same time I was doing a bit much, um, if anything helped my, uh, knee and my ability to have more stamina with running, I think it was probably a transition to minimal footwear. And I was probably, running incorrectly and 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 a little bit i wasn't trained well enough as, or as well as i had thought i was so it's probably more that as far as being resilient now well i'm just more active in general i'm only carrying around 165 170 pounds 75 kilos right so um it it's not putting all of that pressure down on my uh, on my joints and uh so it, it's hard to really with confidence say that it's the diet that gives yeah. me that resilience. Yeah, I think it's just a confluence of many factors. I love that. And I love your honesty there. Like, you know, it's so easy sometimes to concoct a story and to sort of make the story fit what you want it to oh, be. Oh, yeah. You know, we, so, well, we all, it must have, have been injury. must have been related right. to the diet. And, you know, so I, I love the fact that you're just so transparent about that. I think it's fantastic. Um, so, obviously, then at some stage, you, you well, as you said, about six years ago, you transitioned after reading Mark Sisson to kind of your second effort at going paleo or primal. Um, you know, how did you start? What, what, did you, what changes did you start making at first and what were your biggest challenges when you started moving towards a paleo diet? Okay, well, first of all, it was an absolutely fantastic transition because, like I said, I was coming from constantly being hungry um, to throwing out the, the, the calorie counting and, you know, just doing the standard things of no grains, no legumes, uh, you know, cutting out the, the, the sort of the, the, the no-nos of paleo, right? And enjoying really, really healthful meals, especially compared to what I was eating, because I think that the main the main benefit is is getting rid of the processed foods, mm. you know, and getting rid of the sugar, all that good stuff. And so I was eating a much better diet. And my I was feeding my my body the nourishment that I think it was really hungry for. That's what I was gonna say. I mean the nutrient density would have changed dramatically. That's what it was. And and so I was I was far more satisfied with my meals. Um and like I said, the weight, I had sort of been at a plateau for a little while and I actually started losing some more weight, which is not uncommon when you drop carbohydrates, right? Mm -hmm. Because you end up um, losing a lot of water weight and, and uh, glucose and, and whatnot. So um, not uncommon, but it also continued beyond that point to where I knew it was the diet that was causing actual fat loss. I leaned out a little bit more um, and it, it was just... <laughs> I think the timing was just right for me because I didn't have too many challenges on a personal level. Um, it just sort of maybe the typical difficulty at the family gatherings, you know, where, <laughs> where the, where the junk food is still being served and, and, and that kind of a thing. But that was, even that was pretty easy to overcome. Um, I had also started latest in paleo, not too long after that. And so I was making a habit of di diving into the research, keeping up with the community, keeping up with all the latest information. And so um, it, it just all worked out correctly for me as far as finding the correct motivation and, and, 
and feeding it all into a healthy, virtuous cycle of, of being able to stick to that. Not to mention a fair bit of accountability when you start your own paleo podcast show too, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think that is a factor, you know, and, and it's hard to quantify it. But um, I would definitely say that added some because now you you put yourself out in a position where you're, you're talking about yourself and, and, and what your own results are. And so, um, yeah, I, that, that must have played a factor, but it's very difficult for me to say how much. It's, it's always hard to know and to measure, isn't it? So, so when you were doing, I guess, the more typical paleo diet, uh, for want of a better word, I mean, there's no real typical paleo diet. But when you were doing, you know, that that paleo diet you were doing at that time, um, you know, what did that look like for you? What what was like a day in the life of Angelo at that time? Okay, so I would say it was a little bit of intermittent fasting, and that that kind of always came naturally to me. I, I I've never been a big breakfast eater, so um, a first meal maybe around eleven o'clock, and it was uh, on days that I worked. I remember I used to take this uh, type of a uh, stew almost with bone broth and and meat and marrow and uh, really really nice healthy stew, and then some vegetables and kombucha. And so it, it was really just the meat, a little bit of vegetables, and uh, trying to work in a little bit of fermented foods as well. I was uh, more primal than paleo maybe originally, so there was maybe some yogurt in there once in a while, some cheese. Uh, since I've I've come to learn that I'm lactose intolerant, so I don't know if that was helping or hurting <laughs> at the time. But uh, so you know, it kind of looked like that, and then very little snacking. Um, it, it was, I, I was also one of those people who experienced little hunger on this type of a diet and then, which was a, again, a great relief compared to where I was before. And then, a, a, a dinner that was more like a, instead of a stew, super a stew, it was more a nice healthy piece of meat, uh, again, with a little bit of vegetable, um, maybe a salad as well. And that was about it. And, and judging by the photos from 2013, a, a killer paleo beard as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. As you go paleo, <laughs> the facial hair starts to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have the whole package, right? It looks fantastic. I love it. Big, if I'm going to eat beard. like a caveman, I'm going to look like one, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So, so obviously, you've, you've made those changes. You know, you'd, you'd lost, as you said, some more weight. You were feeling pretty good about it. So, what was the motivation for you to sort of start thinking maybe there's a little bit more? Was it the gut health stuff or, or were there other issues that you just thought, you know, that were just nagging at you? You thought you might be able to go one step further? Um, yeah, you know, I think we pretty much covered it with it being, um, the, the safe starch debate where I experimented with that a bit, had some good experience, uh, as far as increased energy, looser genes. And, um, then the gut health stuff, I experimented with just a, a really big increase in, uh, whole food fiber, you know, not supplementing it, but getting it from whole foods. So, uh, during that experiment, it, it, like I said, had worked so well and I never expected to lean down the way that I did and to feel as well as I did doing it that I realized that there probably was something to it. And now I, I've always been somewhat open-minded as well as far as diet goes. Like I said, I don't think that this needs to be like a, a paleo team versus vegan team and you know we, we kind of get into all kind of arguments and whatnot so I, I had always kept up with what um, the people on sort of the other side I guess lack of a better phrase were, were, were doing and I knew that there was excellent uh, results coming from you know the the high fiber type diets the Mediterranean diet does consistently well in in research um, 
as far as on the more plant-based side, you have, you know, McDougal's work, Furman's work, Esselstyn, uh, who has published some really remarkable papers with reversing heart disease. Uh, heart disease runs in my family. So I, I was never really opposed to the idea of eating more plants. Um, and as I started to kind of think about, well, you know, I, I'm eating quite a bit of oil in my diet, fat in my diet. And, you know, there's no real getting around it, but oil is a processed food. You know, it's taking let's say an olive and you are removing everything from that olive except the lipids it's a highly refined and isolated macronutrient you know um and so a single tablespoon of oil regardless of what it is has 120 calories so if one is eating you know do some quick math four tablespoons what is that uh 480 calories from um oil and let's say you're on a 2,000 calorie a day diet, well, 25% of your diet mm. is a highly refined processed food. And there, there's, that's not controversial. That's not really debatable. Um, and so that, that kind of maybe made me think a little bit about doing all of this added stuff, you know, and, and to, uh, I've always had an inclination toward focusing on whole foods anyway. Uh, so that that I guess kind of started that whole journey, and and I, I was like I said aware of the different information out there, and um, as I implemented adding more foods, I don't know that I actually m followed or mimicked any any other diet. I wasn't maybe well versed enough to under to to know exactly what the other people were prescribing. I know McDougal is very heavy. I, I interviewed him recently. He's very pro starch, you know, and I was more when I started this. Uh, concentrating on vegetables versus mm -hmm. uh, the the tubers and and legumes and whatnot, but since have added those as well and grains and maybe we can talk about why in a little bit. So I mean that's how I kind of got my foot in and and it was just my success that made me not only understand that hey this this works in practicality for me regardless of why, but then also I started taking a look more at some of the more recent archaeological findings. Um, scientific research, hunter-gatherer diets, what we know about those. And a lot of this has come in since 2002, you know, when, mm -hmm. when Ordain published uh, the paleo diet. Um, and even since 2005, when he updated some of his um, ideas. And so I started to really, and I, and I still believe that, I, I, that this paleo approach that I follow is actually something that is consistent with the Paleolithic era. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating debate, isn't it? I mean, I've certainly, you know, I know there's there's been some articles I've read talking about, you know, what they felt were the percentages of, you know, meat versus vegetables in in paleo diets, and and some, mm -hmm. I know there's at least one that sticks in my head. I remember reading that that certainly suggested that it was a really high proportion of meat making up some of those traditional diets. But mm -hmm. uh, I guess it depends well, where in the world you were as well. I mean, we've spoken exactly. before about you know there's, there's at least one Papua New Guinean tribe who were 80% tubers, you know, essentially sweet potato, mm -hmm. um, and so you know there was such a variety within that around the world as well. 
Yeah, if you look at modern hunter-gatherer diets right now, they range from 90% animal-based to 10% plant to all the way the other extreme where some are eating 90% plant and 10% animal. And if you look at specific groups like the Tarahumara in Mexico or the Catabans in the Pacific Islands, right, they're eating 70% carbohydrate. Uh, and then they range 10 to 20% fat, 10 to 20% protein. So you do see this wide range. Now, I, okay, so it's safe to say that uh, like everyone listening to the show is familiar with Lauren Cordain's The Paleo Diet. I know you've we, had him on the show. So they better, right? Just a couple of weeks right? ago, so I hope so. Okay, okay perfect. So you now I've actually come to believe that Cordain's diet really ought to be considered the standard paleo diet. Um, and, and I think it is important to standardize it simply so that it's defined, it can be better studied. Um, it's frustrating when studies do come out, and I'm constantly looking to, at any study about paleo, but then when you analyze the diets being used in those, they're sort of all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. one study is using olive oil as the main fat. One study is, um, you know, 40, 50% carbohydrate. And so I, it really, I think, is an important thing to standardize it so that we can study it, okay? But then there's many variants of the paleo diet, just as I believe there were, and, and, and it's not controversial, just as most people understand that during the Paleolithic era, the diets were dependent upon environment. So today we have like primal, we have low carb, high fat, we have autoimmune protocols. Going back to the 90s, you had uh, the Paleolithic prescription and um, Neanderthal, right? Ray Audet. So you, you, there's always been these different variants. And I'm just suggesting that there is room on that spectrum for a more plant-based paleo variant for people yeah. who want that nutrient-dense, plant-heavy, high-fiber whole food approach and so Angela, do you think there's an effective way of figuring out which one of these approaches is going to work for you i mean you know, do you think genetic testing is, is developed far enough that we might be able to figure that out do you think we need to look at our you know our history our, our ancestral history do you think we need to do you know trial and error on ourselves and if so how do we measure that i mean what do you think is the best way to try and figure it out I, I think it's going to probably come down to some trial and error uh and experimentation because you know, I, I have thought about that because a lot of the archaeological findings, for example, um, showing that there are Paleolithic tools from, you know, 30,000 years ago with mm. um, grindstones and pestle grinders covered with starch. And, you know, uh, you go back actually about the same era, 32,000, 33,000 years ago, there's a site in Italy where they found the first uh, evidence of oat consumption and they would take these oats and make them into porridges and it's believed that they would also bake flatbreads. Um, and, and then when I look at my own ancestry and I've done the whole 23andMe thing and I'm 89.2% Italian. So, uh, I mean, if, if the Mediterranean diet is um, sort of a, a localized kind of a thing, then, then maybe that explains partially why I do so well on this. Um, but then again, you know, it, it, it seems like when it's been studied in research where you just have a, a more broad base of participants, it, it also seems to, to play well there. I think, you know, if I was going to give, if I, if I were to give anyone any kind of dietary advice, it would just be to shift away from the, the standard Western diet hmm. uh, of processed foods and just move toward whole foods. And then as you start tweaking it, I, I think that's going to get you the most benefits. But then as you start tweaking it from there, there's definitely things that I think are based on the individual. I mean, people have food sensitivities and allergies and um, different kinds of conditions. It's, it's, 
I, I'm not sure that, that there's going to ever be a formula or, or at least not in the near term that's going to tell you that you can eat this kind of a diet or, yeah. or this is the ideal diet for you. I, I think you're right, Angela. And it seems like there's a lot of people sort of claiming to be able to test all those things at the moment. But I think we're, we're really just not far enough advanced to be able to really definitively have those sort of answers. So I, I tend to agree with you. It has to be trial and error as, as inaccurate as that can be. That, that's sort of the best mm-hmm. tool we've got at the moment. Now, Angela, we're basically out of time now, but but I can't oh, no. let you go without asking you another question because sure. you mentioned the G word earlier. And uh, and so, you said that you are now including tubers and grains back into your diet. And so, I want to know about why that is and what you've done and, and how you've oh, boy. been feeling doing that. And you've got like a minute, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I've got a minute. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Let's be really quick. Um, as you look at the, 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 the arch- well, let me be even quicker. Okay. So there's archaeological evidence, there's scientific evidence. Um, anytime fiber is researched in the diet, the results are positive. Uh, and we know that it is, um, beneficial for the microbiome as well. And people just do well as far as degenerative disease and, and that kind of thing when they have fiber in the diet. Um, and in, of course, there's the blue zones, which you mentioned before, which provide us a pretty good example of, uh, you know, a population who eats beans as a cornerstone of their diet and they're living to 100 years old. So at the very least, we mm. can say it's not hurting them. Okay. And, and, yeah. and these people are eating, you know, legumes, tubers, grains all the time. Um, in the paleo community, there's a, there's a lot of concern about anti-nutrients. And so, you know, the predominant belief is that Anti-nutrients like phytic acid, lectin, saponins should be avoided at just about at all cost. But in the greater nutrition community, these are actually seen as health-promoting. Some researchers uh, suggest that phytic acid, for example, should be considered a vitamin. And they're looking at creating the phytic acid supplements because it tests so well in research. Uh, people can also look at uh, things that St- Stefan Guianet or Chris Kresser and, and others have written at, who are kind of loosely related to the community um, on these topics. And so it turns out that foods that are high in some of these anti-nutrients are also very high in fiber. And when you look at it, look at them in the context of their whole foods, they, they seem to do to, and perform really, really well. Now, as far as paleo, the other thing would be, you know, it's commonly believed that we didn't start eating these things until 10,000 years ago. But more and more, the more the more informed opinion is that they didn't just magically start eating these uh, grains, legumes, tubers ten thousand years ago. Uh, they had a long history with these plants. Okay, there's evidence twenty thousand years ago at Ohalo Two in Israel, and this is actually Lauren Cordain considers this site to be the best earliest evidence of grain consumption by humans. Twenty thousand years ago, I mentioned oats and uh, different starches 30,000 years ago, 40 to 50,000 years ago, there's evidence of Neanderthals in Spain eating barley. um, And and, and they actually found cooked barley in dental plaque. And the evidence goes all the way back to 105,000 years ago in Mozambique, um, where they found mainly uh, evidence of processing sorghum grasses. And uh, it's believed that, well, actually those same sorghum grasses were the evolutionary ancestors of what are now the main cereal crops in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that grains necessarily should be one's uh, staple. I'm not suggesting uh, that if one feels they have a gluten sensitivity, they should eat wheat, but there are gluten-free grains. Um, It's very easy to get fiber that way, feed the gut. Um, If you can find me a study showing that people who eat legumes um, do poorly health-wise, I would love to see that. Mm. Um, 
And, uh, you, you know, it's just this sort of confluence of data coming in, pointing to these things actually being health promoting. And like I said, with all of that archaeological evidence as well, and the archaeological community kind of being in, in, in more of the mind that, that uh, a grain-free, legume-free, tuber-free diet is not what Paleolithic people were eating. Yeah. Um, there was a, very briefly, there was, uh, last year a paper was published about um, how tubers are what is believed to have allowed us to develop such complex and large brains because they developed, uh, they, 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 they represented a immense source of um, calories that were just freely available, you know. So we, we, we have relied on these foods throughout our evolution ever since coming out of the trees as fruit-eating um, hominins down to the ground where I think we found a replacement for those fruits in tubers. So, I mean, th I could go on and on about I'm going to stop you there, Angela, because we are that. totally sure. over time, but that might be a whole other episode sometime, I reckon. But the only thing I wanted to add to that was the other factor, I think, that kind of supports your argument here is that so often we talk about, you know, the, the time frame it, it takes for our genes to change and, and to have those sort of genetic changes within humans, but... I guess the other things we're now discovering is we're learning all about epigenetics and that it can be about which genes you use, not necessarily which genes you have. And we're learning all about the microbiome, which of course can change, you know, those generations cycle through much quicker. That You, know, you can have changes in your microbiome in a much shorter space of time as well, you know, both of which may help explain why, you know, people might be more able to deal with perhaps tubers and grains than perhaps we'd previously thought when we thought about the paleo diet too. Well stated, and I mean, and 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 that's true. It's it, we we really don't necessarily know. Also, if if you study grain consumption in the context of a Western diet, then maybe there can be poorer outcomes, better outcomes because of that. But what happens when you study it in the context of a pure whole food uh, diet? you know, what factors play together. There's just so many variables and all the evidence that I'm aware of points to um, that type of a diet actually being extremely health promoting. The blue zones probably being the best evidence of it in, in practicality. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier the uh, the Ikaria retreat and I should just mention that is it's two of my, my friends who are on uh, the 100 Not Out podcast, which is on the Wellness Couch, the network that this show sits on. And they're going back to Ikaria next year for their retreat. So if people are interested, they should check out 100 Not Out. And it's Damien Christoph and, Lauren, uh, Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce heading over there. So if people want to find out more, they can find out that. But if people want to find out more about you, Angelo, um, they can go to your website, which has a great name, humansarenotbroken.com. I love that. Um, they can find out so much more information about you with your latest in Paleo fan page on Facebook. Um, they can find you on Instagram and Twitter, which is Angelo Coppola. That's A-N-G-E-L-O-C-O-P-P-O-L-A um, on, on Instagram and on Twitter. And of course, they can check out the latest in Paleo podcast show. Um, and you've now got a weekly newsletter with all these sort of scientific updates that you've been talking about being shared. And they can find that on your Facebook fan page as well. So I have a feeling people are going to be thirsty for so much more information, Angelo, because it's so obvious you've got so much more to share with us. We might have to get you back on the show sometime soon. But for today, thank you so much for coming on board. It's been fantastic. Well, I'd be happy to return and I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, mate. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the Paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.